0: I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said that sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, C.S. Lewis uh, lends, uh, excuse me, (laughs) C.S. Lewis uh, in this book, he um, gets at the heart of what it means for Jesus to be divine. Um, And and he explains the importance of this, that if he is anything less than God, he is not worth listening to. I would agree. Um, And yet we are surrounded today by many influential voices. Voices that claim that it's okay to listen to Jesus as a moral teacher, Um, but surely he was not God in the flesh, or so these voices would claim. What response will you give to this sort of thinking? We need to be informed about the truth of who Jesus was, therefore we look to the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel account takes us through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. He does so to point to the truth that Jesus is the son of God. Mark 14 explains that Jesus was the son of God and was slain for sinners who did not deserve him. As you'll recall, the Son of God is a key theme throughout this gospel account. Um, We've seen this in various sections. Look no further than the first verse of Mark 1.1. Mark opened with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In chapter 3, verse 11, the unclean spirits professed his sonship. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, Mark writes, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And look again in chapter 15, 39, after Jesus is crucified, Mark records, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So from cover to cover, Mark is explicitly clear. He wants his reader to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to save sinners, sinners who did not deserve him. Mark 14, in particular, our passage for the evening, offers both positive and negative examples of responses to Jesus. The majority of these responses we will see are actually negative responses. This is an intentional move for Mark. He wants us to see that Jesus died for those who were completely unworthy of his grace. Therefore, Mark wants us to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and to forsake ourselves in following him. But what is required, we must ask, of those who would trust in Jesus as the Son of God? What requirements does Mark outlay in this chapter? In this specific text, we will look at four requirements for those who would trust in the Son of God. Requirement number one, trusting the Son of God requires selfless service. Our first point tonight, trusting the Son of God requires selfless service. I'm getting this from verses one through 11. In Mark's typical fashion, he provides a and sandwich of sorts to encompass his idea in these 11 verses. Uh, recall that the sandwich model uh, is one where there are two slices of bread, two sections that surround a main event or the meat of the sandwich. In this case, the bread is the plotting against Jesus, and the meat of the sandwich is the worship of the woman who anoints him. We pick up in verse 1. I will read, Now the Passover and festival of unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him covertly and kill him. So notice that right away we are um, we see opposition to Jesus. Um, Notice that there is question about killing Jesus. Uh, that, That seems to be the end goal. Indeed that is the end goal of Jesus' opponents. They want him dead. They are opponents for that very reason. They are against his message. However, They feared that if they apprehended him in public, that the people would object. So there was a a practical problem for them. They couldn't confront Jesus publicly because they were afraid of what the crowds would do. And that's where Judas comes in. Verses 10 and 11 um, provide the answer to their predicament. Judas will betray them, and he betrays them by providing them an opportune time at which they can apprehend Jesus. He has agreed to help them seize Jesus when the moment is right, when they are away from the public eye. So there will be less opposition, um, they're, they're thinking. Uh, in contrast to Jesus' opposition, we have verses 3 through 9 which actually offer the only positive account of a response to Jesus in this chapter. I'll read verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster flask of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So notice the location here. Now Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. He is hanging out with the common folk, so to speak. That is often where Jesus was located. And notice the perfume that is used by the woman. It is a very costly perfume. Um, The text even explains how expensive it was. It was about a year's salary. Um, So something very extraordinarily expensive. This is a very significant event, this woman breaking this flask and anointing Jesus with this very costly perfume. One might wonder how she obtained this perfume. Um, Being a woman in the first century, she likely did not have a salary that could afford this perfume. So many speculate that it was a family heirloom, something that was handed down. Um, Very significant to this woman. Um, And notice the significance of her using that in worship. She is willing to give that up in order to anoint the Lord. Of course, there are those who objected. There were those who criticized the woman's actions and believed that it was a very wasteful use of this perfume. Why not sell the perfume, use that money, and give it to the poor? After all, that's what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, is it not? To sell all his possessions and to give that money to the poor? That seems like the Christian answer, doesn't it? What does Jesus respond? No. He says, you're absolutely wrong. He corrects them, and he calls the woman's actions a good deed in verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good deed for me. She anointed him prior to his burial. This is significant. She knows that Jesus' time is limited. And she decides to use something that is significantly, uh, monetarily significant to her, perhaps even sentimentally, if it's a family heirloom, she uses that to anoint the Lord. Her action, in fact, will be recounted alongside the gospel. Uh, Jesus makes that clear at the end of that. Uh, That chunk there, verse nine, Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the entire world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. So this woman, as I mentioned, she is the only positive example of a response to Jesus in chapter 14. She recognized that this was the time for her to act and to give this precious gift to Jesus in trust. You see, she demonstrates to us that trust through a selfless act of worship is what Jesus requires of one who would follow him. Notice Jesus' comment also in verse 8. She has done what she could, very simply. Jesus acknowledges that she has done what she could. She brought her very best to the Lord. These actions are a kind of self-sacrifice that Jesus calls us to as his disciples. Recall back to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see the woman here, Mark is using her as an example to say that this woman embodies self-denial. She's not concerned about making a name for herself. In fact, the gospel writer does not record her name. She is concerned about worshiping the Lord, and she chooses that over pursuing self. Judas, on the other hand, we could say he's a foil to the woman. Um, He serves to show us what the opposite of self-denial is. Uh, He actually embodies self-centeredness. He does that because he sold out on Jesus. He willingly divulged or willingly agreed to uh, essentially set up Jesus' demise, uh, and he did that for money. I find that interesting. See, the woman, she was willing to give a very costly gift to the Lord, not concerned with self. Judas, on the other hand, on the contrary, is using Jesus to obtain monetary uh, gain. So you could say that he is an antithesis to the woman in this sense. So what do we do with this? Well, I wonder, are you living in a manner that is worthy of the king? Are you living in a manner in which... You are not seeking for self, and you're actually seeking the advancement of the kingdom. You see, your life is not your own. It belongs to the Lord. If you are his child, you belong to Christ. The woman recognized that. She recognized that her life belonged to Christ, and she demonstrated what proper worship looks like. Worship is a posture of one's heart that is reflected in the activity of one's entire life. Worship is not limited to activity one day a week today. It's displayed throughout the week. It's, it's displayed every moment of every day. That's worship. So are you living a life that is worthy of the king, that is proper godly worship? I wonder also, do you view your life as a stewardship? Do you believe that you and everything that you have or think that you have actually belongs to the Lord? Or do you use terms such as my money, my time, my fill in the blank? Recognize that all that you have is actually the Lord's and that will fuel your usage or your stewardship of those things. So trusting the Son of God requires selfless service. And it also requires knowing his atonement. That's our next requirement. Trusting the Son of God requires knowing his atonement. I find this in verses 12 through 31. We pick back up in verse 12. The disciples come to Jesus asking him about the location of the Passover meal. It is worthwhile to remind ourselves of the role and the significance of the Passover itself, and specifically the Passover lamb. The Israelites were instructed, back in Exodus, they were instructed to kill the Passover lamb and spread its blood along the doorposts of their home. Exodus 12, 13, I'll just read that, you don't have to turn there. Uh, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plagues will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover was an annual remembrance of the Lord's faithfulness to his people in preserving them and rescuing them from captivity. Jesus provided very specific instructions about this meal and where the disciples should have it starting in verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. So Jesus is very specific about where this meal ought to take place. And then verses 17 through 31, we have another sandwich here. Uh, This time the bread is the predictions of betrayal and falling away. So Jesus is talking to his disciples about their uh, impending sinfulness. That serves as our bread and then the meat of the sandwich is the institution of the Lord's Supper. That is the central point in, these, in this section of verses. In verse 18, Jesus states that one of the disciples will betray him. Now, as the reader looking from the outside in, we know who that disciple is. We know that that's Judas. Uh, however, the disciples are unaware uh, of who that specific disciple is. Um, in fact, they are concerned because Jesus is very nonspecific about who will betray him. He simply says, one who is eating with me, right? That narrows it down. They're all eating with him. So they are kind of at a loss and they're, they're questioning, um, is it me? Am I the one who will betray you? Um, they're actually very upset. The text reads, they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I, Jesus responds to them with another generic statement that the betrayer dips with him in the bowl. So this is a reference to bread. He's talking about this is essentially one who is breaking bread with me. So again, it's one of the collective group. And they do not know at this point who that betrayer is. In verse 21, Jesus acknowledges that his betrayal is part of God's plan. He acknowledges that it is a necessary step for him to be betrayed. I will read that verse for us. For the son of man is going away just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. One commentator notes that this verse displays God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How is that, might you say? Well, God's sovereignty is displayed in using the betrayal of Jesus in order to accomplish his good purpose, which is the cross. Man's responsibility here is embodied in Judas, who, although his role is necessary, he's not off the hook for his selfish betrayal. He has to own that because he still made that choice. Judas was in the wrong, but God used it to accomplish his will. Verses 22 through 25 provide, as I mentioned, the meat of the sandwich, the emphasis here. And that is on the table, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus acknowledges that the elements of bread and wine are his body and his blood. Now, in saying that, obviously, it is not his physical body that he is describing. um, But it is those elements that acknowledge Jesus himself. Um, as Pastor Brett would say, it would be, it's the equivalent of them identifying with Jesus in taking those elements. One commentator explains that the elements are not the physical body and blood of Jesus, nor are they merely a memorial. We can, I think, go a little bit too far to the other extreme to say that the table is just that. It's just a memorial. And that is also false. It's actually more than that. This commentator notes, the elements mean or convey the person of Jesus. In that sense, we are identifying with him when we take of the elements, as we did this morning. We are identifying with his death and his resurrection, which we anticipate. And and anticipate even his second advent, his second coming. His body was broken as the bread was broken. His blood was poured out, as was the wine, and it was done for the sake of satisfying the justice of God. Mark, interestingly enough, he is the only gospel writer to include the line in verse 23, and they all drank from it. Talking about the cup, Mark says, and they all drank from it. That is unique for Mark, Um, and it's important that we note that because the all, or actually that entire statement, they all drank, underscores the fact that all of the disciples took part in the Last Supper. And in just a short moment, they will all turn their backs on him as well. They will all turn away. These men are sinners who are undeserving of God's grace. So we see that the table is for not the righteous, but the unrighteous, for those undeserving of grace. These disciples were not worthy to be seated with Jesus and to take part in the meal, and neither are we when we come to the table. But Jesus makes us worthy. Because of his atonement, we are viewed as righteous in the sight of God. Eschatological hope is highlighted in verse 25. I will read that. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is instructing his disciples about his return. He is acknowledging that that is a reality. The table has this reflective aspect of looking back on the cross and remembering what Jesus did, but it also has this future anticipatory element. Not sure if that's a word, but it is now maybe. Um, It has a a future leaning aspect. We, We know that he will come back. We know that the second advent is a reality and we long for that. The bottom layer of this particular sandwich this bottom layer of bread, is the prediction of all of the disciples falling away, verses 26 through 31. Notice that Judas was alluded to in the first layer, verses 17 to 21. And now all of the disciples are mentioned in 26 through 31. This is an all-encompassing betrayal that Jesus uh, predicts. No longer is any one of them questioning who it will be, they will all betray him, as Jesus makes clear. Jesus says, you will all fall away. And then he quotes from Zechariah 13 and verse seven, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So we know that this is a reality. The disciples know it as well. Peter insists that this cannot be the case. He is adamant that he will remain faithful. Verse 29, we see that. Um, he insists that surely he will not betray the Lord. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, yet I will not. He is adamant. And yet Jesus responds to him saying that he will actually deny him that very night and he will deny him not once, not twice, but three times. Three times Peter will deny the Lord that he professes. And Peter doubles down. He's confident that he will remain faithful. Verse 31. Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples join in. Surely none of us will do that, right? We've been with you for 13 chapters. Surely none of us will turn our backs on you. That's what they're thinking, at least. And they have perhaps good reason to do so, right? They've they've been through seasons with Jesus. They've experienced ministry and life with Jesus. Perhaps they have valid reason. Perhaps we would even say the same thing. It seems that Mark records this statement in order to show the devastation of their abandonment later in verse 50, because they will all fall away. They will all turn their backs on Christ. Christ. So what do we do with this section of scripture? First of all, if you are not identifying with Christ, if you don't trust him, trust him. That that is your first priority. If you are not a believer, not a follower of Christ, recognize what Jesus did for you. Recognize that the atonement is a requirement of God, not an option, there aren't many ways to get to heaven there is one and his name is Jesus so recognize that his body and blood were given for you do you believe that also we must forsake efforts to make ourselves acceptable in God's eyes this is a great temptation even for us as Christians for my brothers and sisters that is a temptation To think, well, I did my devotion today. I prayed for X amount of time. Surely, the Lord is happy with that. He's content in what his son did. So rest in that. Know that you bring nothing to the table. You are a sinner. And fully dependent on God's grace. We have to commit our lives to our brothers and sisters, to a local church. We have to live and breathe that. That's what Christ wants for us. He wants us to link arms with our brothers and sisters in the pursuit of him. Be about that. Invest in one another's lives. So we've seen how trusting the Son of God requires selfless service and knowing his atonement. Thirdly, trusting the Son of God requires watchful prayers. Watchful prayers. Jesus does not want to experience the cross. At least that's what verse 35 would indicate to us. He is praying now in Gethsemane. Um, and, And in verse 36, he acknowledges that the Father's will is best. So notice that. See the humanity of Christ in that he anticipates suffering and doesn't want that, but also recognize his willingness to submit to the Father's will, to do what he came to do. Verse 34 And he was, excuse me, and he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went on a little beyond them and fell to the ground. And began praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is willing to suffer. He knows fully well the pain involved in absorbing the wrath of God on himself. And yet he does that willingly. In verse 38, Jesus wants his disciples to pray and to keep watch with him, but they keep falling asleep. Verses 37, 40, and 41, they keep continually falling asleep. Notice also as the scene shifts, Judas enters into the scene in verse 44. So Jesus acknowledges that the betrayer is at hand. Um, Judas kisses Jesus in order to identify him to the small mob that he's brought to apprehend Jesus. And Jesus in verse 48 questions the ridiculous nature of their approaching him with weapons as if he would resist them, as if they could have taken him at any time and, and he would have willingly let them In verse 49, we see that, again, as we saw in verse 21, Jesus acknowledges that this betrayal is necessary. It is a necessary component of God's plan. God uses the evil of these men who apprehend him in order to accomplish his good purpose. And then, of course, we come to verse 50, where the disciples flee. Mark is very tactful here in his brevity. And the significance of this brief section of verses cannot be overstated. The disciples fled. They abandoned Jesus when they promised that they would not do that very thing. And his disciples all left him and fled. Verse 50. And continuing on to 52. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Kind of an odd section of verses. But intentionally placed by the author and the divine author, I believe, that the Lord wants us to see these verses for a very pointed reason. Who was this unnamed, young, streaking man? We don't know for certain. Some speculate that it was Mark himself, his way of including himself in the gospel account, but we don't know that. The text leaves him anonymous, and so too must we. The streaking disciple, however, is a helpful representation of what the disciples did to Jesus in his hour of need, They all fled. They all left him. They sought self-preservation over self-denial. Reading again from Mark 8, this time verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The young man chose to preserve his life. Rather than following Jesus, in a dangerous time. He would rather experience. The shame of nakedness. Than to remain with Jesus. And I believe that can be said. For the disciples as well. They chose what was comfortable. What could preserve self. In order to. Seek their own way. They, they were not willing to follow. The Lord to. The cross. So what do we do with this? Well, we must be disciplined in our prayer, recognizing our utter dependence on the Lord. When we pray, that's what we're acknowledging, is that we are insufficient in ourselves. We need the Lord in order to be faithful. So be regularly communicating with God in the fight against temptation. Acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge that just like the disciples and the young man, you and I are very capable of seeking for self. That's the truth. So lean heavily on the Lord. Seek him in order to remain in the faith. Surround yourselves with brothers and sisters who will help you fight against sin. This is not something we can do on our own. We need one another. So, trusting God requires selfless service, knowing his atonement, and watchful prayer. Fourth, and finally, trusting the Son of God requires expectant profession. Expectant profession. This is verses 53 through 72. So, we see in, this, in the opening of this section, 53 to 54, The scene shifts now to Jesus as he is brought before the high priest and a makeshift council of accusers. Notice, Peter does follow at a safe distance. He's there, but he's not there. right? He's outside of this gathering. He's not willing to jeopardize his safety. In fact, he is warming himself by the fire. See the contrast. So in the presence of the council, Jesus is before his accusers who actually struggle to come up with a coherent story so as to condemn him. Look at 55 through 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. So they are fabricating stories in order to condemn Jesus, but they can't get the story straight. The irony. In verses 60 to 62, which Dan read for us a moment ago, we see that the high priest finally attempts to corner Jesus to get to the end of the matter. He knows that he can give the decisive question that will elicit the response that he wants from Jesus. However, Jesus would not answer outrightly. Verse 61a, but he kept silent. Jesus kept silent and did not answer. Jesus remained silent initially in spite of the lies that were offered against him. This should cause us to reflect back on the prophet Isaiah and the suffering servant. Reading from Isaiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. You see, Jesus fulfills this scripture here at this juncture. He is the lamb that is led to the slaughter and he does not open his mouth. He does not respond initially to his accusers. So the chief priest tries again. He winds up another question. Uh, The irony of this statement, though, is that in attempting to corner Jesus to get what he wants from him, um, he actually gives a true testimony of who Jesus is. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Does Jesus claim to be the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, the Son of God? Surely this question would elicit that answer from Jesus, he hopes, and it did. Jesus answered emphatically because this, this was accurate of, of him. This was an accurate testimony. He says, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So not only does Jesus affirm that he is the Son of God, but he says that he will be seen at the right hand of God. Himself, a seat of highest honor. And he will also return. He is coming again. There will be a second advent. So not only does Jesus confirm the question, he actually doubles down on it and emphatically says, Yes, and I will return. That response set the high priest off. That was all that he needed. He tore his clothes in response to what he considered to be blasphemous. And with that, verse 64, and with that they condemned him as deserving death. So not only does Jesus subject himself to these accusations, but he actually provides the proof that was needed in order for him to be condemned. See that. So he is subjecting himself physically and he is also providing that piece that they were missing, that testimony that they couldn't get right. He's actually offering that. So how willing are we to profess Christ to those who oppose him? How willing are we to give an accurate testimony of our Lord? Notice how Jesus is very clear and definitive with regards to who he is. Even in the face of death, are we Willing under much less dire circumstances to give account for who Jesus is and what he's done. Also, in light of our eschatological hope, what would you be doing differently if Christ returns tomorrow? If he returns today? If he returns in five minutes? what would you be doing differently? I would encourage you, by the grace of God, to do that. Whatever that might be. Whatever sin needs to be put to death. Whatever brother or sister you need to make amends with. Do that. Don't wait. And finally, section 66-72, to we have Peter's denial. This is the closing of our chapter. Uh, Mark directs us back to the character of Peter in order to close out this pericope. Peter is confronted by a servant girl who recognizes him as a follower of Christ. Three times she questions him and three times he denies Christ. Exactly what he said he would not do. Notice the increasing tension with which he responds especially the last response he gives, Mark writes, but he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man that you are talking about. He's emphatic. The same Peter that swore to remain faithful even to the grave was very quick to deny Christ. See, Peter was very comfortable in his courtyard there. He was very comfortable seeking for self it seems like we can grow quite comfortable ourselves I I think I can grow quite comfortable seeking for self that's kind of the nature of sin sin has a certain appeal to it. it seems attractive Pastor Brett would call it cotton candy right everybody likes cotton candy it has that sweet taste initially but it proves to be empty does it not When it comes to being uncomfortable to be the only Christian in the room, I wonder, how willing are you to discuss your faith? You're surrounded by people who do not care about Jesus or about the Bible. I actually think it's kind of irrelevant. So how quickly do we depart from what we profess to be truth? I found that convicting myself. Actually. Is it preferable to defer a gospel conversation for an easier time? The time is now. The time is now. Trusting in the Son of God requires selfless service. It requires knowing his atonement. It requires watchful prayers, and it requires expectant profession. Jesus is the only one who could bear our deserved punishment for sin. So do you trust him? Is that a reality for you? Do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Or is that just something that holds relevance weekly, biweekly? Mark's desire is that we would trust in Jesus as the son of God and forsake self in following him. So what's left for those who are Christians, who profess faith in Christ? Well, if you are a follower of the Son of God, are you living a life that's consistent with these requirements? Let us, together, seek him for his glory and his glory alone. Pray with me, if you will. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. In fact, you are the only one who could bear the cross of Calvary. You are the only one who is faithful to God to the end. The disciples professed that they would be faithful. We, at times, are stronger in our faith than others and think that we're unshakable. God, humble us. Help us to grow in our dependence on you. We need you. We pray that you would come even now and convict us where we need conviction. And grow us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.